0: Smart Council is a joint production of Multnomah University, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, and New Pattern Counseling. Welcome to Smart Council HIV 201. Smart Council provides resources and perspectives to providers and students on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese. I'm Joshua Moore. And we are back in the studio with Benjamin Garretts.
1: How are you doing? Yes, thank you so much for having me uh, on the uh, broadcast. Yeah,
2: thanks for coming back. So last time we did a session on education of HIV and AIDS, as well as other STIs. Today, we're going to talk more about practical information skills and uh, tools for the therapist related to STIs.
0: What should the clinician do in the room with a person living with HIV Mm -hmm. or another STI? So we talked some about language before, Mm -hmm. but... We could talk a little bit about language again. And specifically in terms of microaggressions, when a clinician is sitting in the room with a person living with HIV, um, what are some things to say to build rapport, convey support, and maybe some things to not say that would yeah. alienate and demean- And we
2: might have to talk about this in different stages, too. Clients who come into your office who already know their HIV versus clients who just found out, which yes. I've, I've been in that that seat before where... You know, the nurse is like, so I just told your client that they have HIV and then the nurse literally runs out of the room. <laughs> and you're like, OK, thanks okay, a I'm lot. Like, yeah, I'm going to deal with this. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: But Ben, what have you found? What is most helpful? What is most unhelpful?
1: Uh, well, I think, you know, that's a very good uh, example, and it plays itself out in a variety of different ways. Uh, you know, you would like to, I guess, see a, never a situation where a provider runs out of the uh, room <laughs> very uh, after somebody they're serving <laughs> discloses, I guess— uh, that they're living with HIV or um, that they have a sexually transmitted infection.
2: And that was an actual example from something that actually happened, by the way. Yeah,
1: well, well, but but it does, it, it definitely, it does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's a very good example because it plays itself out, I think, in microaggression ways. Uh, so uh, it's not uncommon that uh, I hear from people that I'm serving and I've noticed this I guess with the own, m- my own accessing of services that there might be minute changes and they will be picked up on. Uh, it could be a, a change in the eye contact, uh, it could be a change in the body language. Uh, I've often heard that, say, like a provider uh, has reached for the uh, alcohol hand sanitizer and is wiping things down in the clinic room or wiping, and and, um, and, and those will not be missed. I think uh, it's critically important that even though there probably is good intentions, I assume good intentions. Uh, <laughs> Sounds
2: th- a lot harder in that scenario. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Just a wee bit.
1: Yeah. Uh, And I think, you know, it's something that uh, all of us are maybe extensively trained on is um, ensuring that we don't bring personal bias into serving another uh, individual, which at times can be challenging if it triggers something that brings up uh, a lot of uh, fearful thoughts or uh, if it triggers a traumatic that uh, I, when I'm in my role as a provider, a traumatic experience that I've gone through myself. Despite that, you know, I mean, we're essentially there to serve uh, the individual and to meet the individual where they are at. So uh, I think, you know, if a person feels that, say, like it's justified that a person living with HIV has a right to have condomless sex or not, if it's what the person feels uh, they uh, enjoy uh, sexually and what they want to do, uh, that might be an example where uh, bringing bias or responding to it with going into a conversation or trying to talk to the person about condom use can result in the person feeling as though they never want to come back.
0: And that's the that's a tricky aspect of counseling and social work work is that we're there to to be with the person to support them, to walk with them we're not in the place of moral judge. We're not always we're, we sometimes take a little bit of a teaching role but we're definitely not in a decision making role or a life-shaping role. We're not trying to sculpt little, little mini-me's. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that sometimes our clients are going to do things that we think are dangerous and that we think are even abhorrent on some level, perhaps. Um, but it's not our place to to make that decision for the client. Right. It's, it's our space to cultivate the space where they can process and discover and learn. And if they ask for feedback, then that's a different thing. but
2: And I think the argument could even drift towards what works. If they leave your office and never come back, you have less influence on them. You have uh, less room to uh, you know, stimulate thought or, or, or help them work on their goals. And arguably that would be bad. I mean, it's, easily to argue that would be bad.
1: It's true. You can no longer have any effective influence on someone whom you have alienated. You know, I think it's worth uh, mentioning there are uh, situations, of course, I guess, that necessitate mandatory reporting, Uh, not for me to say uh, how any provider may or may not approach it. Um, I feel like perhaps it might be in the best interest to the person that when they're doing an initial intake or getting to know the uh, provider, that the provider explicitly mentions, I guess, things that necessitate mandatory uh, reporting. So then the person is made aware and they can choose to either share all of the information that they want or they can make an informed choice to share some of the information while not including other uh, aspects. Um, My experience, I guess, in in my role as a provider, I've seen that that's been helpful And I know that there's times where people have not given me the full story because explicitly they had the information on what, necessitated the breach of confidentiality and the mandatory reporting. I want to mention that HIV is, there isn't a, a mandatory reporting situation yeah, I was that gonna comes ask. into play.
2: That's good, that's good to have that set out right for our listeners who are probably therapists or becoming therapists.
0: Well, I remember, Ben, we had dialogued back when I was teaching an ethics course and I was constructing this ethical dilemma of, in this fictional scenario, I created a person who is HIV positive was seeing my student client in this fictional scenario, and having unprotected sex with their partner who is HIV negative, and was not telling their partner that they were HIV positive. And my my challenge to the student was, okay, in that scenario, what are your reporting duties or not duties, and and we dialogued at length about that. But maybe can you can you say again, uh, are there any cases where? you would breach confidentiality to inform someone that so-and-so has this disease or is that a is that protected information?
1: Yeah. So it's a very good question in that specific scenario. If there were an assault uh, that was taking place, then that would be the grounds whereby I guess the determination on mandatory reporting would happen or would not happen. Uh, So, If it's a sexual situation where both partners are making a willful choice to, I guess, engage in whatever type of sex they both decide to, uh, then both have made that choice. Uh, And whether HIV is part of that equation or not, it's incumbent on both the person who perhaps is HIV negative as well as the person who's living with HIV to make the decision on whether that is included uh, within their conversation about sex uh, or not. I I, I don't feel that uh, it is uh, on only the person living with HIV's responsibility to ensure that that conversation happens. But that being acknowledged, certainly, um, sexual assault is like amongst the most egregious violations of another person. And I feel like um, that situation, if the person living with HIV forced themselves sexually on the other partner, uh, that I I feel would be a, a much a much different uh, uh, scenario. It also brings up, you know, an interesting dynamic in terms of, yeah, like the CDC saying undetectable equals untransmittable. Well, if a person living with HIV has condomless sex with a partner who is HIV negative, uh, does that technically mean that that there is uh, any risk uh, associated uh, with uh, transmitting uh, the virus? The CDC now would say, no, there's not. So uh, it it depends on a variety of different factors. I think yeah the determining one would be uh, whether assault took place or not.
0: But just the presence of the virus on its own is not reportable or you wouldn't as, you wouldn't receive legal legal protection for breaching confidentiality just because the virus was present. But if yes. it were a case of sexual assault you would
1: um, yes. Uh, for, for the state of Oregon, that, that is true. For the majority of states in our country, uh, HIV uh, is um, uh, criminalized. People living with HIV are, are, are unfortunately criminalized. So in that scenario, it depends on where you're at. And if you are in Washington State, for example, my husband and I were married in Washington State, and I had to sign on the marriage certificate that I had disclosed my infectious disease. It didn't say explicitly HIV, but it said infectious disease. I had to sign verifying that I disclosed that information to him, and he also had to sign uh, saying that he verified that that information has been disclosed Uh, because there are um, laws, essentially, that can result um, in people living with HIV serving uh, time uh, in prison uh, for that very same scenario that you just mentioned Um, for having sex with a partner who is HIV negative and neither of them had a conversation about HIV because I I think it's important yeah I mean the person who's HIV everybody has uh, individual responsibilities and if there isn't a sexual assault involved, the HIV negative partner is making a willful choice to have sex and it's a responsibility on their part too in terms of what's talked about and what is not talked yeah, about. Yeah, so it's
0: a very mutual process, which makes it complicated and dicey.
1: <laughs> yes. If the emphasis is only on the person living with HIV, then I think it further, I guess, perpetuates a, a stigma. Yes.
0: So related to reporting, I suppose, what
1: are cases
0: where a clinician should ask about infectious disease status during an intake? Mm -hmm. And how extensive should that questioning process be? Mm -hmm. Should
1: it be happening at all? What do you think? There is value if a person wants to self-report any type of condition ...that they may be uh, managing. And I would say, you know, HIV uh, would be one amongst uh, many on that list... ...that might be beneficial to, say, like, have on a intake form. For example, when a person goes to the uh, dentist... Uh, ...and there's usually a pretty substantial list of health conditions... ...where a person has the choice if they'd like to, to check the box to say, yes, this applies to me. Um, I mentioned, you know, specifically the person making the choice because the person I feel also should have the choice to not check the box. I I, I do find, I guess, for people that I'm serving, while it's not always the case, uh, a lot of times... Uh, HIV is the least of their priorities in terms of what they're seeking support uh, from me as their provider. There's more oftentimes much more significant social determinant of health priorities, or it often comes up uh, what it would mean to establish a meaningful uh, relationship, uh, an intimate, meaningful relationship with a uh, partner. That seems like a good sort of
0: microaggression to potentially avoid. Assuming that if a, per- if a person is living with HIV, that that is the primary dominant aspect of their life and an immediate crisis for them, it may not be. It may be something that's in the background, something that's well-managed, something that's maybe not yet well-managed, but there's still other more unmanaged things in their life. I remember when I worked at a community mental health clinic, we had our infectious disease forum that was <laughs> filled out and then not even included in the official record, we would review it in session, and then shred it uh, so as to keep that information safe. But information about HIV was on there. And it seems adequate because if a person has these conditions, then they have them, and it's worth noting. But they're also coming in for a drug and alcohol treatment, or they're coming in because they're experiencing homelessness, or because they're experiencing suicidal thoughts. And obviously, those are going to be more of a priority. Yes, their infection is important and needs care, but it's not necessarily the most urgent thing for them.
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, exactly right that uh, it shouldn't, I don't feel, be perceived that the top priority of a person living with HIV is going to be to facilitate discussion with a provider about an uh, HIV-related issue. Um, Because, yeah, I mean, that might be the main priority for the person. That might be why they're coming for the visit. Um, If we're asking, I guess, the right questions in a culturally affirming, person-centered way of the individual, I guess, before us, then they'll tell us what their top priorities are. Uh, And though I do feel uh, it is beneficial, I guess, to have that as some type of a context, provided that it would not be, I guess, just HIV or viral hepatitis or tuberculosis that's listed on the intake form but more perhaps a wide range of health conditions and the person has the option to opt in to say yes I want to tell my provider that this is a component of who I am and they also have the option to leave the box uh, blank even if they have the condition
0: so providing options for what is disclosed not disclosed is a helpful thing.
2: Yeah, my, my intake paperwork uh, has been shrinking the longer I've been in private practice. And uh, I think I think some of it came from some of the same conclusions and just also that it can be misleading in the first session. <laughs> uh, maybe they prefer not to answer it, so they answer it incorrectly. Or, mm. or maybe their self-awareness in some area of their life changes throughout the counseling process, and you think of that box as being unchecked when it is technically checked later. You know, (laughs) uh, so, so keeping a simple intake has been something we could almost do an entire session on, you know, uh, let the client disclose the information if they feel like they are maybe not in person, but, but on paper, they're putting down everything that is very hard to disclose. I think that changes the first session because they know, they know they've stated it on paper. They know they've given that to you, but what if that didn't happen? What would, when would they tell you? I think it changes.
1: Yeah, that is very
0: true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could see where an extensive intake could potentially challenge a trauma-informed model in that you're extracting all of this super sensitive information from a person without having the relationship context.
2: Well, they feel the need to talk about it because they've disclosed it, but it may not be the right time.
1: That's a good point.
2: The wrong not the not the right relationship, not not ready yet.
1: I totally agree with having the paperwork ideally be not more than one form, if mm-hmm. at all possible, because, yeah, I don't feel in general, I guess it's the most person-centered approach to throw a ton of paper papers at people. Especially, I mean, people living living with HIV, when you're newly diagnosed, I often say it's like it feels like buying a house because you're signing so <laughs> many different forms for all these various services, which all of them, you know, it's, it's good that you sign them because the services uh, – are there to uh, support people, uh, but uh, y- you don't get you know the uh, keys uh, th- uh, to that. Yeah. You get a lot of forms. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: so then, tip for clinicians, providers who know that they w- will be working with uh, people living with HIV, a tip could be to streamline your paperwork process to make it very minimal, very short. Maybe not prying for lots and lots of details, just the bare minimum details and that will create a more welcoming environment.
1: And I, and I think, yeah, per, perhaps, yeah, that would apply for across the uh, board, too. Um, I mean, if our services are reaching people, I think I feel, uh, equitably, uh, then we're reaching people who experience the most significant barriers to living, I guess, a healthy, thriving life in general. So it's not uncommon if a person is filling out, say, like housing applications, They'll be filling out a ton of forms there and then they'll be filling out a ton of forms for a renewal of their Oregon health plan benefits and then they're coming to us and they're filling out more forms and it feels like uh, they're purchasing a house but they're not getting...
0: Like, oh goodness, all that paperwork is <laughs> stressful for me. and <laughs> I even Oh my goodness. <laughs> so <laughs> I like the idea of a streamlined process because it's less work for me too. What are other helpful attitudes, helpful practices, helpful dialogue helpful terms to use if you know you're working with a person living with HIV or a person who like suspects they might be what are other helpful things
1: I found that it's been beneficial I guess to do as best one can to mirror the language that the person is using uh, even if that language may be deemed Somewhat inappropriate, although uh, inappropriate is very subjective. It's very subjective. I mean, if I'm talking with a person about uh, the sex that they're having and they use the word, which I probably can't mention, but an F word Uh uh, (laughs) to describe what they enjoy, then uh, if I come back and I say sexual intercourse, then (laughs) it doesn't to me, feel like I'm really affirming meeting the person where the person is at. You sort of sterilize their life experience. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I think, you know, uh, affirming and trying as best uh, one can as a provider to mirror, I guess, the person who we're fortunate enough to uh, share uh, time with. Um, And I think part of that, I think, includes body language reactions, too, Especially, I think it can be challenging as a provider when we're serving a person and they say something that we as provider have lived experience and it was a very traumatic experience for us. It can be tough to, for us to put on, I think, the poker face and not have a reaction. If we do have a reaction, I hear from people you know, that I'm fortunate enough to serve. They, they, they will pick up on it. They will notice it, and sometimes it can be a very, very big deal for them. I, I don't want to, you know, have any provider feel as though they have to be thinking about this at the expense of thinking intentionally and listening intentionally to what the person in front of them is saying. I think it's just important as one component of something to be mindful of.
0: For sure. And that's something that. I think is a reasonable expectation for any provider who will be Mm -hmm. sitting in the room with a client is to be mindful of your voice, be mindful of your eye contact, be mindful of your body language, your paraverbals, be mindful of everything you're communicating with your whole self. And within that, to recognize that one of your primary tasks is to honor the person and to respect their, their inherent dignity. You know, within you know, the Christian tradition, we talk about you know venerate them as an icon of Christ and recognize the image of God in them, and that person deserves love and care, same as anyone else. So those are some helpful attitudes to to really just make space for the person and recognize them as a person, honor them as a person, and allow them choices, offer them choices about what they will disclose or not disclose, and be mindful of what you're communicating with your reactions to them. You know, like like you had shared the story of, you know, the one clinician who they, they learned about this and they immediately reach for the hand sanitizer, you know, maybe <laughs> not do that. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Just stay present. Just stay present, <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh-huh. The other thing is uh, I think um, if a person is mentioning something, I guess it seems like a, a very significant, perhaps even on like a horrifying level, uh, traumatic experience, there can be, a good intent to want to convey sympathy. Uh, I would encourage, I guess, focusing on uh, empathy uh, m- more uh, than uh, sympathy. Uh, I can say for myself as a person li- living with HIV, uh, I am not seeking like anybody's sympathy for my life living with this uh, virus. It is what the situation is. Uh, I actually try to use it as a source of motivation to be the most positive person that I possibly can be with maybe an additional uh, meaning attached to the uh, word. Uh, So even though somebody may have good intent in saying, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm sorry that you had to go through that, Well, the person might not necessarily want to hear uh, that another person is uh, sorry. They might want to hear, you Mm -hmm. know, that that, that's uh, something that you've uh, experienced. Tell me more about it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. you don't need
0: your provider to feel sad for you, but you would be helped if they were interested in learning more about you.
1: Create the opening to continue the conversation versus closing the door.
0: Another thing I'd like to talk about is... When the clinician has opportunity to provide education, provide psychoeducation, do a little bit of teaching for a client who either they know is living with HIV or they know is at high risk, or perhaps they're talking with a client who they know they potentially had an exposure and they're waiting to find the results, what are some bits of education that would be useful for the client that the provider can give?
1: Yeah, so I think after, I guess, assessing if the person, uh, which uh, educational options I guess the person is most uh, interested in, if they are, I guess, interested uh, at all, if they have made the uh, choice and wanting more information, moving from there, I feel it could be a number of different avenues. I feel it's critically important if a provider has up-to-date information like, you know, what I mentioned with the CDC, undetectable equals untransmittable. Well, I mean, a lot of people living with HIV have felt that that has been a truth for, for some time, for, for, for decades, and they feel as though the CDC is sort of late in the game in making this announcement. You know, regardless of how a person may feel or not feel, I, I feel that it is beneficial that the CDC has made this uh, announcement. Now it's a matter of how many people or providers may be aware of that information and how many might not be. If a person is very up-to-date in following things with HIV, great. I think if it's a provider working with that person in providing that education. And if the information is not up-to-date, then I feel it's incumbent upon the provider to include amongst the buffet of options that a person can choose from referring to an external source, Uh, whether that be a a website like uh, HIV.gov that is kept up to date with um, recent medical science uh, surrounding HIV or a variety of different uh, resources. If your inner gut as a provider, I think, is telling you I feel like I can provide this information, the person has told me that they want the information from me versus the other options that I've presented, uh, then I would, I would go with it. And if your gut is telling you that you might not be the expert on this particular topic, then perhaps encouraging, if the person is open to it, to maybe select, I guess, both the information you can offer and to also seek out additional sources.
0: So maybe the last question before we wrap up, but if a provider wanted to develop their competency in this area and learn more, get more training, either about what HIV is, what are the factors affecting people living with HIV,
1: what are some resources that they can access or trainings they can attend? We're very uh, fortunate in the uh, state of Oregon, but actually uh, all 50 states uh, have uh, this program. It's the uh, AIDS Education Training Resource Center. Um, The acronym is AETC. It's one of my colleagues. uh, Her her name is uh, Dana Morrison. She organizes uh, a number of continuing education trainings, uh, which are made available both in-person, online formats, to uplift what we currently know medically, scientifically. I guess related to HIV. Uh, there's, um, you know, certainly a wealth of information on uh, websites. Uh, some of the information is up to date. Uh, other w- websites could be uh, rather. Uh, traumatizing <laughs> um, The uh, web is beautiful and uh, the web uh, is uh, vast in terms of what's on there. Um, but uh, yeah, the one that I mentioned, uh, HIV.gov, I think is a fantastic one. Um, it also has a tool embedded in whereby a provider could type in a zip code and they could find, I guess, HIV specific services that are uh, close close by for uh, external uh, referrals.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Uh, I might have to check out some of those trainings myself. Well, Ben, do you have any last thoughts, uh, again, geared toward providers who are in the room with with people? What would be helpful for them to know? Things that they should remember?
1: Well, I mean, I guess I'll come back to the theme that we uh, mentioned in the 101 that... Uh, There is so many uh, complexities of, I guess, what makes a person beautiful that we're fortunate enough to serve as providers. And I think it is incumbent to see in all forms of the services that we're providing that beauty first and foremost with our body language, our eye contact, the words that we're using, everything that we're doing. Because the people that we're fortunate enough to serve, they're the experts on their lives. We're not the um, experts that can do all these type of interventions to induce a specific type of uh, outcome. We can meet the individual and honor that they're an expert, that they're a beautiful person and all of the complexities that are involved. And one component could be that the person is living with HIV, but that one component should not be, I guess, the label that we attach to a person versus uh seen I guess the complexities of uh, the beauty first
0: for sure people are many things all at once and all that together is a beautiful person well thank you again Ben for joining us and sharing your time and your experience and we wish you well in all of your endeavors
1: yes thank you so much an honor to uh, be here all right and thank you keep doing good work well we will thank you (laughs) Culturally affirming, affirming person-centered services. Yes. (laughs) That's us. We are Smart Council.
0: Please be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. We love your feedback, and let's keep the conversation going. Follow Smart Council on Facebook at Podcast, on Twitter at SmartCouncil601, and you can email us your questions and comments and feedback at SmartCouncilPodcast at gmail.com. Joshua Moore can be found on the web at neurofeedbackcare.com. And Reese Basimio can be found on the web at newpatterncounseling.com. Our theme music is by Nate Botsford. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. This episode was mastered by Julie Patterson. Smart Counsel has been produced by Reese Basimio and Joshua Moore.